Sego, and welcome to Resistance Radio with John Kane and Regan DeLoggins. Hey, folks, we are listener-supported radio, and I know you hear it from a lot of programs, and you're going to hear it from me. We need your support, and so whether you're listening in New York City on WBAI or in Washington, D.C. on WPFW, I ask that you go to your pledge line and make a contribution to uh, to your station. And by doing so, you, you're also supporting this program on that station. So if you are in New York, I ask you to go to 212-209-2950. That's 212-209-2950. Or go online to give2wbai.org. That's G-I-V-E, the number two, wbai.org. And you can follow the prompts. Look, you can... You can make a one-time donation. You can be, you can time your donation. Uh, you can become a BAI buddy. Um, if you're in Washington, you, I ask you to go to 202-588-9739. Again, that's 202-588-9739. You can go there online for WPFW by going to WPFWFM.org and also follow the prompts to, uh, to make a donation. Look, we're not just asking you to support the station. We're actually asking you to become a member of the station. And once you've made a donation, whether it's a time donation, uh, a monthly donation, or a one-time donation of $25 or more, you actually become a member of the station. And with that membership comes uh, comes some say in uh, in the station. You you um, become a voting member on certain issues. And and we do have a, a vote that's coming up. I know you heard it at the break, but um, there is a Pacifica bylaws election that's coming. Well, that's actually underway right now. In fact, if you are a current member or staff member of the station, you pro- should have received either a mail-in ballot or an email ballot um, to vote on uh, on on a proposed uh, bylaw change. Now, I can't tell you which way to vote. I can't even suggest or urge you to vote a certain way. But what I can do is I can tell you to remember. <laughs> remember uh, back a few years ago when there was a coup attempt. And, well, actually, it was, all, it was successful for a few days, for a few weeks, where WBAI was actually off the air and local control was, uh, was stripped away. All I'm saying is when you are being asked to cast a vote on a bylaw change, which could change the control of these stations, Consider what uh, what WBAI went through. Now, I'm not telling you which way to vote, but I am saying you um, a bylaws change will affect local control of your stations. So uh, I will leave it at that. But uh, if you if you if you've received a mail-in ballot or an email, don't disregard it. It is important, and it's important that you uh, that you well for one thing you've earned the right either as a staff member or a, a listener member to to have some say so by all means uh, uh take that opportunity if you will all right um do uh, regan are you are you with us still waiting all right okay well then regan will join us but uh, today is a bit of a of a mixed bag there's a, a couple of news items that have that have come along um and we want to discuss uh, you know a, a couple of them one that is just you know, this I'm I'm afraid the one story we're going to talk about is just one we're going to hear over and over and over again, and that is the discovery of 751 unmarked graves at a, at yet another residential school. This time in Saskatchewan, uh, Marival Residential School uh, in Saskatchewan, and you know, for most of us, we know that if if they keep looking, they're going to keep finding. I mean, there's 
we know that we lost children. And I say children, but those children would have been the the peers and the friends and the relatives of, of our grandparents. I mean, our great grandparents. This is, you know, Maryville Residential School. It um, it operated from 1899 for almost a hundred years. Just just a couple of years shy of it. It it finally closed down completely in 1997. So that's almost a hundred years. Now look, in spite of it operating for a hundred years, there's still no excuse for for any children to have died in these schools. I mean, I don't know for the most of you who who attend uh, school, I don't know how many of you attended a school that required a graveyard, or worse yet, required unmarked graves to to dispose of uh, you know of of your fellow students. But that's the history of residential schools. So. Regan and I will talk about that, and, and I don't want to get into it too far until Regan uh, is able to join us. So, a um, couple of things. One other, one news item that's not really related to uh, to the kind of thing that Regan and I usually talk about, but I got to bring it up. Look, there's there's these mayoral mayoral races that are going on, and the second largest city in New York State is uh, is, is Buffalo. Buffalo has had a uh, a mayor serving uh, by the name of Byron Brown. For four terms, he was he was actually running for what would have been the, his historic um, fifth term as the mayor of Buffalo, and he was upended. And there will uh, there's no Republican candidate running in November, so essentially the, the the Democratic primary is essentially the election. He was actually beat by India uh, Walton, and she's a Democratic socialist. Now, you know, people can have different opinions and, you know, labels don't always do um, justice to the positions that people take. But, you know, she was a a nurse and a community activist. She became very active in the Black Lives Matter, um, uh, you know, movement. And she basically unseated, you know, know, the governor of the state of New York, his favorite mayor, (laughs) because let's face it, de Blasio wasn't (laughs) his favorite mayor in, uh, in, in Byron Brown. And it is a huge upset. I mean, it's uh, I think NPR has been covering it and that kind of stuff. But since I'm broadcasting from the Cattaraugus territory of the Seneca Nation, which is, you know, just outside Buffalo, um, you know, 30 miles or so, I figured, let me at least mention this news because you're probably not hearing about this on WBAI. And and it is kind of big news. I mean, she's got a very progressive and uh, progressive agenda. And it's going to be interesting to see, to see how. You know, she navigates because, you know, obviously the mayor's position is just one job. There's a whole city council and that kind of thing. It'll be interesting to see how it plays out. Now, see, Buffalo is a pretty Democratic city, but Western New York is very Republican. In fact, Erie County, the, the county that, uh, that Buffalo sits in, is, is still a very, very, you know, uh, red uh, area of uh, of you know, of New York state. So it's going to be interesting to see how, how it plays out. Now, Byron Brown was a black mayor. So she, she, um, uh, India is not the first black, um, mayor of Buffalo, but she's the first woman and she, and, and for, for her to have run and successfully taken out, not just a, an incumbent, but a very well connected, um, uh, incumbent, uh, that's it's it's pretty unusual. So I wanted to mention that just in passing. I, I realize it's not New York or Washington. Hey, news, John, but, before uh, you go further, I just wanted to let you know that Regan has entered the domain. She has Here. entered the building. Can y'all hear me okay? <laughs> yes, we can. Thanks, Regan. I, I appreciate it. 
Um, I, I only briefly mentioned uh, the residential uh, school issue, I, just really the headline. But but let's let's talk about it a little bit. I mean, it's it, it, as I, as I said in the opening, if it, if they keep looking, they're going to keep finding. And the idea yeah. that they they have discovered what is now um, this is in one place essentially one residential school this Merivale residential school in saskatchewan 751 you know and, and it, it could be more 751 unmarked graves now these may have been previously marked graves but they're unmarked now uh, and it is this is just an ongoing tragedy or actually it's an ongoing revelation of tragedies of the past and and I said it before, look, we knew that that uh, these people had died. We knew these people were missing. The Catholic Church who ran this one knew they were missing. And frankly, the the governments that 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 fund these schools know they're missing. So whether we're talking about the U.S. side or the Canadian side, this tragedy, uh, while in many regards from a from a, the residential school era having ended, maybe the tragedies in the past, but the harm continues. And frankly. The foster care and some of the other things that are, are, are some of the legacies of these schools very much continue. Absolutely. And, you know, I think that's something that I've been I've been struggling, obviously, since a, a number of these mass graves have been found. Um, and though the, it's 751 at, in Cowess, Saskatchewan, um, as of June 23rd, so as of today, it's actually 1,323 um, children, um, 215 in Kamloops, 104 in Brandon, uh, Manitoba, 38 in Regina, 751 in Cowessis, 35 in Lestock, and 180 in Carlisle, Pennsylvania. Um, and we've talked about the Carlisle Indian School before. Um, and something that I don't think people really understand is that, like, like you said, this is going to continue. As uh, as mass graves are unearthed, even though they've, you know, I guess it's not technically unearthing when they're using um, uh, sonar and radar, but as these graves are found, this will continue. And, and what does that mean for our communities? You know, that's that's always my, you know, that's always my concern is what does it mean to constantly be triggered and traumatized by the unearthing of these graves? Especially, I don't think people understand um, non-indigenous people understand that literally every indigenous person I know has family that was in a residential school. And sure. when, when the Kamloops grave was found a couple weeks ago, um, I was invited to read a, a poem at the Constellary Mapping um, event, which is this wonderful event held at the Abrams Art Center um, and curated by, um, by my friend Emily Johnson, uh, who's an incredible indigenous performance um, a performance artist and poet and I was asked to come read a poem that I had written in which I I recounted and read literally every residential school's name between Canada and the U.S. and it's a, a minutes long performance piece in which I'm just naming the schools and as I named them um, surrounded by my kin I stopped at each one and repeated the names of each school that I know that my kin had family at, including my own family, because as someone who's reconnecting with my community and doing research about my family, you know, I find that my family was at Spencer and at Carlisle. Um, so residential schools permeate literally each one of us 
every one of us had a family member that was at residential schools. Every one of us had someone that was stolen from us and forced into these programs. And so, and, and I also want to say that when I say every indigenous person, I mean every indigenous person because residential schools still exist in Central and South America and indigenous children are still stolen and forced into residential schools currently in Central and South America. So it's not like this has gone away. And there could be argument even that most schools that teach colonial education are residential schools. So this is an ongoing legacy of trauma. And, and my question really that I wanted to unpack is what do we do as these graves are continuously unearthed? How do we come together as community and provide healing for one another? Because it's just going to get worse. And a lot of us don't know, including myself, don't know how to unpack all these traumas. I don't know how to handle finding out that hundreds of children are in an unmarked mass grave. Like, I don't know how to handle that. So how do we come together and really start discussing this and start healing? Because that is that, you know, that's impossible. And I'm not asking the federal government to participate in that. I don't want them to participate in that. This um, residential school program that Deb Haaland is uh, supporting like this, that doesn't make me feel safe or good. In fact, it makes me incredibly nervous. Well, on that note, I can't help but but mention that it's called Federal Indian Boarding School Initiative, um, FIBSI. Like no. Well, I gotta tell you, FIBSI. I mean, that that's almost telling right there. <laughs> it's. I mean, well, it's, it's... you're right. I mean, it, it is so, just so frustrating because, you know, look, this isn't a new issue. This this is you know literally unearthing something that that the governments were very well aware of. I mean, the crazy part is on the Canadian side, they already did their Re Truth and Reconciliation Commission. They refused right? to fund fund any of this stuff. They they tried to reduce, you know, this, you know, and, and again, you know, Murray Sinclair, native guy who was basically, you know, a, a part of the Canadian government, called it cultural genocide. He couldn't even call it genocide without trying to stick a precursor in front of it to somehow make it seem less deadly than it really was. Um, so all of these, these these discoveries right now are happening. I mean, that Truth and Reconciliation Commission ended years ago, and you know, and and what did they do? They said, well, we're going to cut some pay we're going to cut some checks, and we're going to we're going to apologize. I mean, Murray Sinclair's uh, song is "Sorry Enough." I mean, that's that's literally or Murray, and I'm sorry, Murray Porter, Murray 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 Porter's song is "Sorry Enough," which is we play on the program all the time, is you know is really you know. Uh, you know his address to this this idea that you know that Canada does you know is saying they're sorry and one of his lines from the song is it's not what you say it's what you do and now that the United States because Deb Haaland is now heading up the the Interior Department I mean really I can't help but be skeptical I mean where I mean, where has anybody been to hear the voices we've been calling this this issue out for many many decades i'm not just you know many years but many decades and you know look she's gonna she's gonna earn a name for herself and you know and they're gonna do a report and and then what i mean there's no way to to talk about things like real reconciliation or you know or reparations or any of that stuff i mean they can throw money at the problem but but you hit it right on the head how do we as native people deal with this thing and and we're talking about generations of trauma that have been impacted by this the fact that the conditions that exist on our native territories today can be directly attributed 
to this genocide that was created through this this specific form of genocide that the United States and Canada were responsible for. I I also think that, you know, I, I'm of course we've all always been very critical of Deb Haaland, um, because seeing an indigenous person within the settler colonial politic is is disappointing for for you and I and I and for a lot of indigenous people though there are a lot of indigenous people who find pride in that which I'm incredibly critical of and so are you and I think that seeing that this initiative is being um is is being pushed forth or coming through or or whatever language you want to use it's concerning because we saw how it went down in Canada um and and so many people often are like well we need to look to first nations we need to look to Canada specifically Canada the federal government we need to look to Canada and how they treat indigenous people in order to better, in order to um, to uplift indigenous people here in the so-called United States. And, and I see that narrative all the time. And, I, and I, I remind folks that a lot of these mass graves are being unearthed in Canada and so-called Canada right now. And that even with this truth and truth and Re- reconciliation committee and reports, as you said, this is it's not justice that doesn't bring a, a report doesn't bring justice. Like that doesn't make that I already know the information that's going to be on the report that our children were forcibly stolen from us and forcibly assimilated. We're starved. We're raped. We're reeducated. We're put through manual labor camp because what some people don't understand is that a lot of these residential schools, if you look, just go on Wikipedia, Google residential schools, go to Wikipedia, and you will see that most of them are named manual labor school because a lot of these children were forced into manual labor. Like this isn't just a school where they were where, uh, you know, indigenous children were reeducated. And I even keep saying where they were because it's so much easier to remove myself from this narrative. But it's we because all of us are impacted by this. It's where we were reeducated. It's where we were murdered. It's where we were raped. It's where we were starved. All sterilized. Let's not let's not leave out the sterilized. I mean, in, in spite of the fact that churches ran these things, there were abortions administered to women, I'm sorry, girls who were impregnated by staff and some of them being yes. clerical staff. I mean, this is the, the this these are the horrors that exist there. And and Regan, I absolutely agree with you. Sometimes it is easier to say they than us. And and yes, it, it's, and it's and it is it's it's painful because you and I are still affected by what what not only ha- transpired for that over 100 years of these residential schools but we were also affected by the 60s scoop and the you know the you know the foster care system i mean even with in with indian another federal program that was supposed to fix it right indian child welfare act i mean we know that that there has been multiple ways that people have gotten around this thing i mean there was that 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 case where the where the father lost his daughter in, in spite of the fact that that he was trying to use the Indian Child Welfare uh, Child Welfare Act, and and we know that the border has been used. I mean, somebody was just asking me, how is it that my relatives, when I did a 23andMe thing, um, you know, are are so scattered all over the place, even though they only come from this one place? And I, and I said, well, that's the foster care system. That's the that's the way our our children were ripped from from communities and sent out, r- literally dispersed across, uh, you know white america i mean absolutely i i i can vouch for that in a number of ways as someone who you know who is who is and will constantly be reconnecting with community you know being outside of that was strategic 
and it's not my family's fault. It's the federal government's process in removing indigeneity from indigenous people because it's, you know, as, as we've said before, you know, kill the Indian, save the man was the literal motto that created the Carlisle Indian School in Pennsylvania. Like that was the intention of this program, of these programs, of these residential schools. And if they weren't able to kill the Indian and save the man, they just killed the child. Yeah, I mean, because that served the purpose, right? The, the whole purpose was to solve the Indian problem. And the Indian problem was the fact that we existed as as people distinct from their culture. So either they were going to assimilate us and try to, you know, try to water us down, as they say, or whitewash us, or they were going to kill us. And I want to mention one thing about Carlisle Indian School, too, because even though we are we do continue to say that 180 um, children were buried there, those were marked graves. We know that there were there, there were likely many more than the 180. I mean, it's probably in excess, well over excess, excess of 200. But when um, one of these Dartmouth graduates who had done a study on Carlisle specifically, he noted how often deathly ill children were sent home just so they wouldn't die there. He attributes in his research. Um, I think it was something a lot closer to to 600 deaths associated with Carlisle Indian School, and and that's probably more accurate. And and like I said, we we've said it, we both said it a couple of times here. The more they look, the more they're going to find. And to your point, every time one of these things hits the news, it it it's, it strikes us, you know, to our hearts over and over. We get triggered. We get, you know, we we look. We get angry. So we, we can talk all, all, all people can talk all they want about not being hateful. Well, how the frick are you not supposed to be hateful when you find out this number of children is now confirmed, not, not just suspected or, 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 or believed by our people, but when when science confirms, oh, yeah, the, the, whether there are again, whether they are mass graves or unmarked graves, we're just playing semantics at that point. Absolutely. And, and I, I, I cannot stress this enough and you cannot stress this enough. And uh, listeners who are, who are listening to this, we, we need you to understand that this is just the beginning. More graves will be found. And this isn't Nazi Germany, folks. This is the great USA. Okay. And actually, ironically, uh, in, in Hitler's biography, Mein Kampf, he talks about uh, learning from the American example. I mean, and this absolutely. is part of that American example. Yeah, I mean, it absolutely. This is a part. I, oh God, you know, that's something that I, I I try to talk about a lot on um, on social media is that Nazism and the U.S. Uh, quote unquote expansion into indigenous lands, and I'm putting it in quotes because I'm trying to be facetious. Um, they are connected. That that it, the, the the nation of the United States is a white supremacist nation in the same way that Nazism and Nazi Germany was a white supremacist nation. Like we cannot ignore those, those connections because maybe that will help people understand that this is, this is important, dire, and should be scary. Like this is, this is not something that is just, uh, I forgot the quote, but the, the, they came for first, they came for, um, um, you know what? I'm going to pull the quote in a second, but I want to no, I go ahead. Wanna... I know the quote you're talking about, but yeah, yeah I can't, I can't, I'll have to find it. But, um, but before, but I, before I go off on that tangent, I, I want people, indigenous people who are listening to the show, um, to know that we need to start organizing trauma 
relief groups. We need to start organizing harm reduction relief, suicide prevention, and community healing. Not to say that we haven't been doing that for forever, but it is imperative that we begin to do that around residential schools um, for our continued survival because this is going to happen and every time will be as horrible as the last. Every time that we find out more children are found, it will be just as horrible as the last. And the numbers will just get larger and larger. And it's imperative for us to start organizing as community members for community members without federal government support, because that is really the only way that we can combat the, the horrible traumas that we will constantly be triggered to relive. It's imperative that we start doing this kind of work now. And, it's a, and, and for anybody who is struggling, just know that this is a burden that, and that it's unimaginable burden that has to be, that you're not alone, that we have to do this together through community support. That is, well, and, that and, and every, I think you're, I think you're ahead. exactly right. We cannot depend on the federal government to provide the healing mechanisms for this. I mean, they're going to do what they're going to do. Deb Halland or, or with Deb Halland or without Deb Halland. I think we as native people and as community members and as, you know, and whether that community is in places like New York city or Washington or Los Angeles or wherever, we have to build some of that, that support network. And, and it's got to come from us. I mean, because I mean, how do you, how do you even accept or embrace support for the very nations that, that, that committed these horrors against our people? And I want to I want to touch on what you were saying about how the indigenous community is angry or like we have anger within us because there is an unfathomable rage inside every indigenous person. And each one of us is just in that hatred. We are just in our hatred against ongoing settler colonialism. You know, it's, it's not like this rage just comes from histories of trauma. It's a continuation. It's ongoing in this moment. And so and the continued presence of non-indigenous people. Um, of settlers on our land is a constant reminder of this. We have to function every day in on our lands that are occupied. Like that is an incredibly important thing for folks to get. Like every day we wake up in on land that is occupied by settlers. And then we wake up and we go onto social media or onto the news and we see another mass grave has been found. And then we walk through these cities where we're constantly erased through narratives of that this is a country where um, where everybody is free and safe, when we can tell you right now that we are proof that this is not a free or safe country. You know, this is this is a country built on the genocide of indigenous people, the theft of our land, and the enslavement of of, of Afro-indigenous people and our black kin. Like that is the basis of it, and you cannot escape that. And trying to escape that just perpetuates the continuation of these horrible traumas that we have to unpack within our communities. It's, it's well, and I so... want to go back. I want to, I want to go back to something you said earlier too. For anybody who's suggesting that you know that somehow Canada is the model for how Native issues should be handled, give me a damn break. I mean, check out the prison populations in, on the Canadian side. Native women represent twenty five percent of the prison population in in women's prisons in, in Canada. I mean, it's it's absurd to suggest that, and the amount of racism. I mean, I did a I did a video called "This Is Canada" uh, a, a few years ago, and I wanted to point some of that out because every time that we've stood up to a pipeline or, or railways cutting through our territories or or what or or any of these issues that we confront on the Canadian side, it has been met 
with strong. I mean, they they literally had to cut off some of the uh, online forums. Uh, I think with the Winnipeg Free Press because it was it was so hateful and so full of uh, racist vitriol that the Winnipeg Free Press had to get rid of its online forum. That's how bad it is in Canada. So if you believe this narrative that Canada is so nice, then 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 you've just you just bought a a, a big line of BS. Because it isn't so nice. Some of the worst conflicts that Native people have had, and 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 I'm 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 Mohawk. I'm Gunyagahaga. My family's from Gunnawage. Uh, we know what we've experienced at the hands of some of the racism on the Canadian side. And I'm not saying this to give U.S. a pass. I'm just saying that if you're in the U.S. and you think Canada's the model, you're freaking crazy. Well, you know, you always we saw this even we see this all the time with this this rhetoric that Canada is somehow more progressive than the U.S. Not just with indigenous, um, I mean, not just with indigenous relations, but often with indigenous relations. But we also saw this when um, when uh, when the U.S. was attempting to legalize gay marriage and obviously that passed and everyone was like, oh, well, I'm going to go to Canada. Look at Canada. You know, Canada is is um, free of homophobia. And then we saw the same thing when Trump was elected and they're like, everyone's good. Let's go. I, I remember so many privileged white people who kept telling me that, oh, I'm going to move to Canada if Trump gets elected. I'm going to go yeah. there because they've got it together. Canada doesn't have it together. It's a settler colonial nation based on the exact same things that the U.S. is based on, which is literally, again, the genocide and theft of indigenous land and people combined with the enslavement of black people. Like Canada is not free of that narrative just because they have a better PR team. Like we cannot, and the fact that, and the fact that, you like U.S. citizens continue to perpetuate that narrative, and even Canadian citizens perpetuate that narrative. Like, oh, Canada is so much further ahead. No, Canada is a settler colonial nation, just like the U.S. is. And, and they sent military. They, they sent military into Afghanistan, into uh, you know, into Iraq. They they've done. done they're as guilty as of, of any of the crimes the United States is when it comes to you know some of these war crimes. So absolutely, the, um, it's it's all the same. It's all the same. It's, it's true. It's really and it's so damaging, especially because when we're talking from an indigenous perspective, it's so damaging when people are like, oh, well, you know, Canada has been doing land acknowledgments for 20 years. And I'm like, OK, well, the Canadian government also invaded Wet'suwet'en last year and is continuously invading Wet'suwet'en. You know, the Canadian government, the RCMP, is currently arresting people at Ferry Creek on Vancouver Island right now as we speak for, for saving old growth trees. So yeah. like this isn't this isn't like it it, it baff, it's baffling to me that people think that that it, that it, that Canada is a model to look at to in order to rectify indigenous relations here in the U.S. That is an absurdity, and to look that and and of course the federal government, as we saw with um with this commission now that Deb Haaland is uh both the MMIW um commission intervention as well as this residential school investigation commission, both of those are based off of Canadian policy and protocol, which obviously didn't work. It's well, just it's also new, it's also news cycle driven. I mean, we're all of a sudden Hallen has a, is is now speaking out against residential schools because because some unmarked graves were discovered. I mean, th this stuff becomes news cycle driven, which makes it even less you know genuine. You know what I mean? Of course. It, it, and, you know, as soon as it as soon as this is not cool or popular or trending, then it'll go away in the same way that uh, people were advocating for uh, Sheikh Jarrah in Palestine. And then that hashtag stopped trending. 
this this news is so often driven by trend, especially social media trend. And as soon as this is no longer a trend, we will see the, the fundings will be cut. The report will come out, a lackluster report at that. A lackluster report will come out and little will be done in order to provide, quote unquote, truth and reconciliation. You know, and one of the things that bothers me, and this is a perfect segue, um, I mean, one of the things that, that bothers me so much about the mascot issue is the fact that these residential schools existed. When I, when I hear a community of white people say, you know, try to claim native identity for, you know, for their amusement and entertainment, and they have no idea what native kids went through in school for, for over 100 years. In fact, at the, same, at the very same time that many of these schools were adopting these native referenced monikers and logos and mascots was when native children were being beaten, sexually abused, killed, um, buried in unmarked or mass graves, all of this stuff. I mean, it is, I mean, I, and that's what is so frustrating. And for, as a native person, to be confronting a school over this issue, and I mean, the, the, it seems like the conversation should be able to stop right there, but it, but it's never enough. I, I, as an update, many of you know that, that I have been involved in this, this conversation over native mascots for, for many years. And last summer I did a petition um, for my own high school, the school that I graduated from in Cambridge, New York, to change its mascot. And I almost felt guilty because I didn't address it with with my alma mater, as they call it, although it's certainly not my other mother. Um, uh, I never addressed it there. And, and part of it, you know, I knew it was going to get more personal, and it certainly did. So I started a petition back in the fall. I, I went to, to Cambridge, which is a five-hour drive from where I live. It's not like it's, you know, across town. And I, and I, um, I formally asked the, um, the school board to, to take steps to remove its, uh, its, its race-based mascot. They call themselves the Cambridge Indians. They don't even know who the native people are that were indigenous to that area. They, they couldn't even tell you. I mean, uh, we went through a bit of an education process because this whole thing's been dragging on since my formal request for almost eight months. So when, when I finally got on the agenda, which wasn't really until December, the commitment from the school board was to do a vote in March. They were gonna have uh, open for public comment. People were gonna be able to send in letters and emails and reports and that kind of stuff. And the school board was supposed to look into this themselves. I would say that in December, even when I presented this, it was already probably three, maybe even four to one because it was only a five person board in, fa in favor of the change. Unfortunately, the pressure started heating up real quick. One of the school board members quit. So now it was only a four person uh, board, but it was still probably three to one in favor of changing it. So as March starts to come close, the, you know, the heat just got bigger and, you know, more and more, you know, hateful. Um, there, were, there was a lot more on social media, you know, and the media, media was covering some of it. And, so when March came along, they didn't vote. They said, no, we're going to put the vote off till the last board meeting of this, of, of this seated board, which would have been June 10th. And in the meantime, they were going to um, bring in restorative justice um, mediators that were going to do healing circles uh, to, to try to deal with the, um, with the harms that the Cambridge residents were feeling, not over the mascot, 
but over the prospect of possibly losing their mascot or or even having the debate over the mascot. So it was pretty weakly founded. Those healing circles did not go well. And in fact, in the days leading up to what was supposed to be the vote on June 10th, the they finally had some in-person circles and they went terribly bad. One of the board members was viciously attacked um, verbally, I won't say physically, and was threatened and, and all kinds of, I mean, the, the, the so-called healing circles really turned into a forum for hate. And, uh, and in fact, all three of the live ones went very, very badly. But one of them was, was in fact, one of the guys who was part of the, the mediation team was native from, uh, from Oneida, Wisconsin. And, and, they, and they went after him too. So much for this, our mascots about respect, right? So, the, so that's what trans, uh, transpired in the days leading up to the, uh, up to the June 10th meeting. So on June 10th, no vote was had. They actually read a resolution calling for the removal of the name and the mascot and then didn't vote on it because there was some sense from the school board president that it would not pass. It didn't get put to vote, but he sensed that it might not pass. So he bailed on calling for a vote, instead made a recommendation for a, a compromise amendment to the resolution. And that compromise was going to call for keeping the name and, and, and look into the, the changing of the logo or the, or the mascot. And so they decided they're going to put off the vote until the next week. So it would have been you know, last, last Thursday. It would have been June 17th. And, and of course, everybody's like losing their minds here. Of course, all the pro mascot folks think, oh, yeah, we won, we won, we won. And all of us who were expecting that board to vote to retire the mascot, we just couldn't believe what we witnessed. Well, we weren't the only ones on that. It was a virtual um, online uh, board meeting. But there was media on there. And among the people who were on that was was a writer for the uh, the Washington Post, uh, Kate Cohen, and she wrote a piece in the the day before um, the board meeting on which was to be on June seventeenth. So on, on on June sixteenth, she wrote an opinion piece called "A New York School District Confronts Hatred in Its Yearbook, If Not Its Mascot Name." And so basically, what she was talking about was uh, only a couple of weeks ago this school had another crisis where a student, a senior, in his yearbook profile had listed Mein Kampf as his favorite book. And the board and the, and the school administration acted immediate. Uh, immediately, they, they, they recalled the yearbooks. They uh, ordered a reprinting or an alteration to them all. They, they, they dealt with it swiftly and decisively. And that was... Not only did I see that as in complete contrast to what was being dragged out with this mascot issue, but so did Kate Cohen. And she wrote a pretty strong criticism of, uh, of Cambridge, this small town in upstate New York that, you know, that still was, you know, was earning the reputation as a racially insensitive community. And, and so this comes out the day before the board meeting. So the board meeting happens on the, on the, on the 17th. And the amended resolution fails. It fails by a vote of three to two. And they tried another amendment, and it failed three to two. So then they went back to the original resolution, which was to call for the the um, the retirement of the of the name and all native imagery, and that passed three to two. So 
the work that I initiated almost eight months ago uh, resulted in in a, in a board vote to retire the mascot. Of course, that doesn't mean it's over because with a board that's only three to two or only five persons, um, the the board election for new members occurred a few weeks ago. They just didn't all get seated. In July, the board will actually flip from a majority pro mascot uh, or from a majority against the mascot to a majority in favor of the mascot. So whether they're going to try to rescind this thing and continue to drag this little town in upstate New York through the mud and uh, through this reputation of, of being racist or racially insensitive, that's, uh, that's kind of yet to be determined. But, but I, I wanted to mention this because it is, it is one part of the reason that I get so livid over this mascot issue is the residential school issue. Yeah, I mean, they're they're inter. We talk about this often on the show is interconnectedness. Like all of these things are interconnected, and a lot of the time we are taught to parse things out, um, which is why we don't see the U.S. as an imperialist nation. It's why we don't see the U.S. as a settler colonial nation. I mean, even consider the way that statehood is so important in the so-called country. Things are often compartmentalized, especially when we learn about history. Because making those connections uh, would, of course, radicalize people against the state. And I feel like this mascot issue, a lot of people see it, you know, like, oh, we're just honoring you. or Oh, it's just the mascot. Oh, you know, like these these kinds of like uh, the, a way to gaslight us away from having these conversations exactly. is to is to minimize the impact that they have on our communities. So let me just interject something here because of what you just said, this idea of of compartmentalizing historical events or or, or just in events in general. The, to me, the classic example of that is the narrative associated with Abraham Lincoln and the Emancipation Proclamation. And you know, I know I've said it before, and but to, there's no greater example of the separation of, of, of two sets of truths and, and, and one being a little bit altered. I mean, the Emancipation Proclamation, unless you've really looked at it, you don't realize what a weak document or what a, or a weak proclamation that was but it came a week after the largest mass execution in the history of the united states where 38 dakota were hung upon lincoln's ex execution order and you can't talk about abraham lincoln being the great emancipator if you're going to ignore the fact that he not only executed signed the execution order for these guys the day after christmas in 1862 but he created the conditions that caused the conflict in the first place with his Homestead Act. Oh, and the Homestead Act is, oh gosh, I, I just wrote curriculum <laughs> on the Homestead Act. And it's so, it's so, it's so violent. The actual like language used in the Homestead Act. And the, it, it's, it's, oh, I really, the reason I'm kind of losing words here and being a little flabbergasted is because it, again, this is all interconnected. Everything yeah is in conversation with everything else residential schools yeah. and mascot issues and the the mythos of a benign american history it's all interconnected when it goes back to the the, the show we did last week when we talked about this critical race theory and the, and the fact that you you can have um politicians white men trying to pass laws to prevent anything from being taught that might make white people uncomfortable. I mean, I mean, there is no greater example of not just white privilege, but white supremacy than that very notion. 
also make white children uncomfortable. That's a big argument is that this is going to make our white children uncomfortable. And I can't. Yeah, but I, and I, even that, I think I think that's just a weak argument. They know oh, who is it being made uncomfortable, and it isn't children. Children can uh, children can take this. It's the it's the grownups who can't take this. Well, I also want to I want to I want to connect the two conversations that we're having between um, about education and residential schools. Is that the when we talk about the removal of CRT, critical race theory, um, which as you said we discussed last week. When we talk about removing critical race theory from the classroom, we're talking about removing the history of residential schools from the classroom. That's also a part of this. You know, like they will not discuss how residential schools impacted indigenous impact indigenous communities today. And I was reading statistics earlier today, uh, and apparently, according to this uh, this one article, um, only ten percent of the population has ever heard of residential schools, um, and that. Didn't actually, I thought that was higher. That was a, a higher number than I even expected. Nonetheless, we're talking about uh, the lack of education within classrooms teaching about residential schools. So we're talking about the continued erasure of genocide. And and if we're going to be talking about comfortability of children and education, we cannot ignore the lack of comfortability of children who were forcibly removed from their homes and put into boarding schools and then tortured in these boarding school systems. So if if you're afraid that your child is going to be uncomfortable, if your white child is going to be uncomfortable learning about about residential schools, I, I can't I can't not say how how disgusting that is. Considering yeah, how dare you? How dare you? How dare right? you? How dare you? Yeah. What yeah. is the pinnacle of of being uh, uh, honestly? Who cares? If your child is uncomfortable, first of all, they won't be most of the time. You know what you they're said, uncomfortable with? They're uncomfortable with learning math, too. So, so, so what do you do? Take take away so, any of the stuff that might be difficult. And and you know, like it's an incredibly ageist conversation to assume that children can't be thoughtful or have critical um, skills because they can and they often do. So t t it's just an incredible. It's just so it's so rude. It's so rude to assume that. Children are going to be uncomfortable, and I can't help but being being resentful to think that we're going to prioritize that and ignore the hundreds, the hundreds of children who are being found in mass graves right now, who were uncomfortable in their education uh, at residential schools. Yeah, no, I mean it's it's it is an an incredible hypocrisy to hear hear anybody even even suggest that, and you know, and of course. You know, most of that that conversation that's coming from white men, those guys aren't even considering what happened to Native people. Honestly, they're more concerned about you know whether they're going to teach the the real atrocities of slavery. But it doesn't yeah. end. It doesn't begin or end with 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 the enslavement of of any uh, you know of of, of, uh, of Africans. I mean, mo the first slaves were, were Native people. I mean, when you know, it's one of those things about the idea that the the the, the sites for this fight against critical race theory gets set on the 1619 project. Well, there was there was a ton of racism that was already on full display for for 100 years prior for leading up to 1619. And we also can't ignore that Oklahoma is one of the states that passed this uh this um uh, ban on critical part? race theory. Ban, yeah. Thank you. Oklahoma yeah. is one of the states that banned critical race theory taught in the classroom. And we cannot ignore that indigenous nations 
enslaved and participated in the plantation system um, and enslaved black folks. And that Oklahoma, which was at the time known as Indian Territory, specifically continued enslavement and plantation systems past Juneteenth into 1866 as a way to maintain self-determination and sovereignty. So we Oklahoma is also choosing to not have conversations about anti-Blackness within Indigenous communities and is choosing not to unpack these larger conversations. So this is this is so integral to how uh, how children navigate the system moving forward, especially children of color, and to ignore a number of these histories and to ban the, how they're taught in the classroom is part of the continuing trauma that we experience as people of color. And again, to go back to the connectedness issue, I mean, when you look at some of these uh, these nations, these uh, these native peoples, the the trauma that was inflicted on not just on children, but by entire families, on on nations. I mean, you also have the Indian Reorganization Act that that was about that too contributed to to trying to Christianize Native territories and change their traditional governments. Drop all of those things that were inherently part of the the Native identity. And you look at many of those places, and you find that some of those places have have deviated so far away from any kind of Native identity, and they've adopted some of the most racist uh, and viewpoints of anybody. I mean, I I think. I think back to the to again to the Choctaw Nation of Oklahoma declaring yep. that they are that they are a Christian nation and some of the racist uh, stances they take on things. Look, we're we're in Pride Month, and there are a whole lot of Native territories that are really really struggling with this idea of of celebrating Pride Month. I'm you know I'll, I'm going to give the Seneca Nation credit because they although there was a debate about it they somebody produced a a uh, Seneca Nation Pride flag. And there was a debate on whether they were going to hang it, uh, you know, hoist that flag up with the Seneca Nation flag. And they did it. Uh, and, and I'm glad Yay. they did it because this isn't about the Seneca Nation supporting gay people. This is about the Seneca Nation acknowledging that some of their people are gay. And, exactly. and that's what gets missed in all of this stuff. And when I've heard, heard some of the bigoted, racist uh, comments that have come out of some, some Native territories, it, it, it angers me. Not because I want to hate on Native people, because, again, it further, you know, demonstrates how damaged Native people have been by things like residential schools, by assimilation programs, and by oppression from the from the U.S. government and Canadian governments. Absolutely. And I'm so glad you bring that up, because, as you said, it is Pride Month. I am a queer, trans, Indigenous person. I take a lot of pride in being a queer, Indigenous person. You know, I... I I identify with the labels within my within my own community, um, and and also as two spirit because it's now become an become an umbrella term for a number of queer indigenous people. But it's we cannot ignore that a lot of our nations are incredibly transphobic, are incredibly homophobic, are incredibly racist, and often perpetuate or people within our nations rather um, really perpetuate a lot of horrible ideology that often violently removes us from community or or makes us feel unwelcome within our own communities. Um, and I've spoken about this specifically when we talk about land back and what does it mean when we talk about land back and coming back to community as a queer indigenous person when often we are so unwelcome on in our communities and on our land. So I think that this is just such an, an excellent conversation, to, to which I think we should further unpack in the future. 
nonetheless, it's such an important conversation to be having right now during Pride Month in, you know, New York City, which is considered like the epicenter of, of pride, um, if you will, and the epicenter of global capitalism. And those two have unfortunately been married in a really horrible way. Um, but it, it's it's such it's an integral conversation to be having about how our communities can participate in a lot of this assimilationist um, rhetoric that came out of residential schools. You know, like two spirit uh, queer indigenous individuals like myself were targeted first and foremost uh, during the, the first contact. You can read about how queer individuals were violently, you know, fed to dogs or yep. were violently um, sexually assaulted, were, were, were stolen, were murdered, and, and often made, uh, we, we were made to be feared in a lot of ways. And mm-hmm. that's still a history that we're unpacking. And residential schools were a part of that as well. It's not like they yeah. were open to queer children in residential schools or open to children of third, fourth, and fifth genders that have always existed within our communities. That's not, that's not, the, that's not even part of the conversation. So it, it's such an imperative conversation to talk about queer pride and, pri- and pride month and how indigenous nations are now tackling that. Because it, in order to, to really combat suicide rates, to combat ongoing trauma, depression, anxiety that we see within our communities, part of that conversation is providing undying support to our queer indigenous communities, undying support to our two-spirit, to our trans children, to our third, fourth, fifth, sixth gendered children who are really embracing what it means to be queer and indigenous contemporarily. Yeah. Hey, I want to give a shout out for everything that I've been going through with my old high school, Cambridge Central School in Cambridge, New York. I want to give a shout out to the folks that were, who are a part of Cambridge for Social Justice. They're actually holding their their pride event this, uh, this Saturday um, in, in Cambridge. And, you know, those are the guys who, who kind of stood with me uh, at their own risk, I would say, on the mascot issue. And, and they had to, you know, really stand up to a really strong, aggressive, hateful majority that want to keep the mascot issue. And, and look, they've been doing this work. They, you know, they had Black Lives Matter events. They, they did a Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women event. And, and this Saturday is their Pride event. So I, I want to give a shout out to my friends at Cambridge for Social Justice as well. Small little town that has got a terrible reputation uh, associated with, you know, with this mascot issue. But it doesn't mean that all the people in that town are terrible. For John Kane and Regan DeLoggins, I say thank you. <laughs>